Welcome to the Global Band Group, a podcast that brings you stories, news, and great guests from across the world of wind, brass, marching band, and drum corps. My name is Keith Kelly, and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with band musicians and directors from across the world to talk about their stories, their bands, and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at bandsofireland.com forward slash the global band room. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the global band room. And now on with the show. A big welcome back to the band room. Uh, Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to have John Lynch of the Sydney Conservatorium of Music on the show. Uh, John is such a nice guy. He was great to talk to. has such an insight into wind band, both from his career within the US and then from moving to Australia and helping to develop the wind band movement there. So I know you're going to enjoy that interview today. But first, just before that, I wanted to encourage anyone that hasn't already done so to head over to Facebook and join the Global Bandroom Facebook group. Now, you might already be aware of our Instagram page or our Facebook page, and they're great resources. But the Facebook group is where all of this started. And there, to this day, there are musicians in there helping each other out, sharing projects, ideas. Um, and, and just this week, the reason I wanted to bring it up this week was because um, just this week, we've had Mutasa Fahed from the uh, from Uganda um, get some help from other band members across the world, some instrument donations. And uh, myself and Gail Brechting, who was a regular guest um, of the, the podcasts, uh, we did a lesson with her kids there, in, in with, with, um, with Mutasa's kids in in Uganda too so it just made me think you know what Facebook and social media it gets a bad rap from time to time but if it's used in a responsible way well it can be just such a great tool Um, so if you haven't gone over to the group before head over and and join and start taking part in the conversation now at Christmas time, we are going to be launching our new podcast, The Repertoire Happy Hour. So the Global Band Room is a weekly, or we try to make it a weekly podcast as often as possible, uh, interviewing people from around the world talking about wind band. But I want to talk a little bit more about band music and repertoire and listen to some music. And what better way to do that than with some friends and having a drink at the same time? So uh, the Repertoire Happy Hour is going to be a monthly show launching at Christmas um, for our first episode. So we're going to be talking about Christmas music and programming for Christmas concerts. And Gail Brechting, who I just mentioned a moment ago, is going to be my guest on that episode and is going to be a regular guest on a monthly basis. Now, If you have ideas, if you have music that you would like to kind of share with us and get that played on the show, uh, if you have an idea for a Christmas program, if you have new and exciting music that you think we should be aware of that might be good for Christmas, let us know. If you're interested in coming on to the show some month and uh, talking about how you program, uh, we'd love to talk to you as well. So you can always email me about that and any other thing, anything else on the Global Band Room at keith at globalbandroom.com and that's it for now that's all my news for this month enjoy the interview with john lynch so john thank you so much for joining me on the global band room uh i have been introduced to you or or i have uh been uh 
told about all of your work over the over the years by very a number of mutual friends, including uh, Jody Blackshaw and Jason Noble. And it's really great to be able to talk to you at last. Uh, how are you over in Australia? Doing great. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And um, yeah, it's springtime now in Sydney, so it's beautiful. The purple jacaranda trees are coming into bloom, and uh, everyone's feeling very optimistic, uh, given what we've all been through over this last year. Uh, things are going a, a little bit better in Sydney, and uh, yeah, just uh, feeling very upbeat. I mean, because in Australia, not only have you dealt with the pandemic, but you dealt with everything uh, with the fires just before that, really. I mean, it's been a yeah, such been a difficult a year. year there. It's been a terrible year. Um, but, you know, Australians are very uh, resilient and uh, there's a, definitely a feeling of optimism in the air. Um, the, the case numbers of uh, new uh, coronavirus cases are, are down quite a bit. And they're starting to uh, cautiously allow us to go back to restaurants, et cetera. And so uh, people are being very, very careful. But um, there's definitely a feeling of looking forward um, because it's, it has been a dark year, really. Yeah, it, it, it has. Um, and, and I think it, it's it's interesting to hear you talking about numbers sort of declining because I think sort of on the Northern Hemisphere, we're seeing yes. almost the opposite of that right now at the moment. And I'm, I'm recording this interview the, on night one of our new six-week lockdown here in Ireland. Oh my God. So it's oh. almost the flip side of what you're experiencing, it seems. Yes, yes. I feel your pain. It's just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> If anyone's listening to the podcast, they're probably hearing that it's not an Australian accent that they're hearing. Um, you have a, a lot, an illustrious career within the US, um, a wind band uh, community. Uh, uh, what brought you to Australia? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I and we will go backwards from that after that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I definitely consider myself now um, a citizen of both countries. I earned dual citizenship. Back in November, so I'm really excited to say that I'm uh, now officially. Congratulations! So, yeah, there's a couple hurdles to jump through for that one, but uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting career trajectory. Um, my title is director of bands, um, and I, as you say, I conduct the wind symphony at the Conservatorium in Sydney. But um, the most exciting thing about the job here is that uh, I was brought here to create the first collegiate wind band program in the history of the country. So that was wow. the enticement to come here to be able to create something brand new and have a hand in shaping the musical direction of a wind band movement for an entire nation. Um, I'd had no intention of ever leaving the U.S. I was loving my life there and my work there and, and uh, had a great job. But um, I'm kind of an adventurous spirit. And uh, when this opportunity <laughs> came along, I'm like, I've got to check this out and uh, just ended up falling in love with Australia. And what was the wind band scene like in Australia? Uh, uh, shortly after I, I interview you tonight, um, I'm going to be speaking to Lyle McDermott, um, who is oh, the right. director of the uh, the Derwent Valley Concert Band in Tasmania. Uh, exactly. And we've talked to him before about some community band work there. Generally, what is the community band scene or the, the wind band scene like in Australia? Well, Australia has a very uh, long and rich culture of wind band um, and uh, in different um, ways, like the, the community band movement, uh, brass band and concert band is very strong, goes back, you know, a long, long time. And, you know, I would say that you, you'd be hard pressed to find a community in Australia, no matter where you are, that doesn't have a band. 
And uh, there's probably more people involved with the band activity than any other musical ensemble in the country. So band well. richly ingrained in the culture here. And, uh, you know, all high schools and uh, junior high schools have bands. Uh, universities have bands. But what's unique about my position is there have never, never been a full-time director of bands at a university. So having a comprehensive band program with degrees, masters, and doctorate in wind conducting is what was the new part of it. So it's just sort of um, an addition to what was already a really rich band culture. So, you know, I came and just had to hit the ground running and figure out what the culture was like here and how it was different from the U.S. And I wasn't intending to necessarily just take a U.S. model of university band program and just transport it here. I wanted to make what we do kind of part of the fabric of what the band community is like in Australia. So it's a, it's a really mm. rich band scene here. It's quite exciting. And it's been really fun to, to kind of get to know it and become a part of it. Well, it's really interesting to, from from my perspective here in Ireland, and, and I'm sure anyone else in, in Europe would be looking at what you're doing there. And it might be a really interesting model to to get familiar with because we have strong community band scene here in Ireland and, and, and elsewhere in Europe as well. But just like Australia, uh, we didn't really, ha- we, oh, we don't really have any director of bands. We have really good conservators and we have right. great schools of music and so on, but we don't have, just like you're mentioning there with, with, with Australia, there, there's no sort of director of bands at any, in any place. Has the program itself had a knock-on effect into how community band is, is growing or developing within Australia? Um, I probably would say indirectly, but yes, because, you know, I think everyone's aware of what we're doing at the conservatorium. And, uh, of course, the graduate conducting students that are coming through my program are then going out and directing their own community bands and their school bands and bringing some of the knowledge and skills that they've learned uh, to what they're doing. So I think in that way, it's sort of um, spreading around. And also, I've I've made very welcome. Um, ABOTA, which is the Australian Band Orchestra Directors Association, has state chapters um, throughout all the states. And so I've been invited to each of those states to give uh, conducting schools and uh, to present and adjudicate. And so I do feel like it's a very national position that I have, and I take that quite seriously, but this ability to network and connect and and bring synergy um, across the nation. And, um, yeah, I think... uh, in having a university director of bands, it's just a chance for someone to advocate at that level at a conservatory for the band medium. Because while we always had a band at the conservatory, there wasn't a director of band's role. So in that role, I'm able to advocate for the band being on equal footing with the orchestra and the choir and the chamber music and the early music and showing that, yeah, this is a serious genre with a long history of repertoire. Mm. And they were also very forward-looking that we embrace new music and new composers. So um, one of my other missions is to really um, push the wind on Salminium as a serious vehicle for current top Australian composers to write new music for. And it's been sort of a two-pronged approach. So I've been going after top composers, but also seeking out really young talent like the new rising stars, the future of composition in Australia and getting those folks excited about writing for the wind ensemble. Because, you know, sometimes when you go to a conservatory, they think, oh, well, a band, that's, you know, the town band that plays marches and entertains. And I'm like, well, yes, that is it. And we are proud of that. And we embrace that. But we're also this. 
we also do this type of music um, at a very high level as well. People have been super open at the conservatorium to the idea of this wind band culture, and they've been like, well, this is kind of different and cool, but um, I think what it does is it uh, energizes the woodwind, brass, and percussion students and gives them um, kind of a niche. <clears throat> and I always feel like the stronger a band program is, the stronger the orchestra is going to be because you're challenging them with very, very challenge, uh, difficult repertoire, and they're learning uh, ensemble skills how to play as a section within um, each of those instrument families. So we've seen the quality of the, the orchestral wind and percussion sections improving because the wind band is growing and, and evolving. So it works hand in hand. I mean, in a sense, I think you probably have a similar um uh, uh, community within Australia that, that uh, to what we would have here in Europe, where the before sort of your program uh, became sort of a leading or taking a leading role within wind band in Australia, the military probably have, have been very uh, sort of uh, involved in that role as sort of taking a national sort of um, uh, role within within that. I mean, the Australian military bands have always been. Um, prominent on the international st stage as well, doing international tattoos and, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're at a very high level and they're actually doing a lot of commissioning and recording and premiering as well. So, you know, they're, you know, performing at the very, very highest levels and um, it's exciting to see what they're doing. And what I've been able to do with my students is to encourage them to consider that as, as a very valid career path. So, for a conservatory student to kind of not only think of, you know, trying to gun for a top orchestral job internationally, but consider um, auditioning for an Australian military band, you're going to play music at the very highest level and you're going to have a really satisfying life and career. So that is a really viable option. And I've done some exciting collaborations with the military bands in Sydney. Um, we've done conducting schools together where their bands served as the clinic ensemble. And I got to rehearse with them and work with uh, student conductors in front of them. And they've invited me to guest conduct. And there's just been some nice synergy. So yeah, there's, there's banding at all these different levels. So there's the professional military model. There's the conservatory uh, bands happening. All the conservatories in Australia have fine bands. And then there's the, the public and private schools and then the community band. So it's pervasive. It's everywhere. And, and where would, children mostly start their musical career is it is it within a school band program is it within a school conservatory program or would it, the community band sort of take that role um probably um some of all of that uh, every okay. state in australia is different um in some states band is part of the curriculum like it is in the united in the united states like in queensland it's it's part of the school day it's a credit bearing course but in new south wales where uh, sydney is uh, school is not part of the curriculum. It's outside the school day and it's a volunteer basis. So mm -hmm. students might get involved with band through a community band in, in our state, um, or they might become part of a volunteer band that, that meets uh, before or after school, but it wouldn't be for credit. But what tends mm -hmm. to happen in our state is a lot of students, um, what is part of the curriculum is studying an instrument to a very high level. So students can take that as a subject all the way through to year 12. And um, they're doing that in a curricular way, and then they're taking private lessons from the very beginning. So that's a real strength of uh, what's happening in Australia, that most kids in band programs and schools are taking lessons from day one.
So that tends to be how students get into band. They start studying their instrument one-on-one, -on -one, and then their private teacher encourages them to become part of an ensemble. Whereas in the uh, U.S., I would say in general, students tend to become involved with um, their instrument through the band program. So it's yeah, I mean, it sounds so familiar to 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 us here in Europe. Actually, it sounds much more like the European model. Yes, I would say that factor. You get great outcomes either way. It's just two different approaches. But hey, listen, people involved with the band activity are passionate about it around the globe, and so. You see that in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, South America, um, and just how how they get involved with it is different depending on the idiosyncrasies of the country. So, yeah, I would say I would say Australia is uh, historically more connected to Europe than to anywhere else. Mm. And this is sort of an interesting cultural aside. When I came to Australia first for a visit in 2008, I had no idea I was ever going to move here. Um, I felt, wow, this is very similar to the United States. A lot of the popular culture and things that people were talking about in politics were things that were very similar to back home. I'm like, oh, this is quite similar. This feels very American in a way. But having moved here, <laughs> I discovered that scratch beneath the surface, it's way, way different and probably more connected to Europe than it is to the United States historically. And when I've learned more about um, the history of the country, that all makes a lot of sense. There's a there's a huge connection to the UK um, yeah. uh, and to Australia uh, as a uh, um, uh, sorry to um, to Ireland actually as well. There's a, there's a I know there's a big Irish contingent there. My own uh, middle name is Edward. I'm a I'm a, I'm a Ned Kelly true and true, and my my oh, grandfather wow. connects himself right back to to a. Uh, to Ned Kelly's family, uh, oh, cool. <laughs> it's a it's a family legend, but um, it's a, he's he 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 will go to his grave believing that 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 is the case. Well, he was a famous character in our history here. I'll tell you that <laughs> he is, and for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, he is the Robin Hood of of Australia. He you yeah. know love him or hate him, there's a there's <laughs> there's a different communities uh, that believe different part different things about what uh what ned kelly was yeah well, but uh, but there is that huge irish uk sort of connection with australia yeah. big irish community here absolutely over the years i've had the pleasure to host many visiting international bands choirs and orchestras here in ireland alongside my own bands and groups every one of these events is exciting and my favorite part of each exchange is seeing the musicians kids and adults interact with each other sharing their stories and experiences. If it wasn't for the accent, I'm not sure I could identify my own band kids sometimes. So when I got into the music travel business, I wanted to make sure I was working with a company that understood that these exchanges were at the heart of the experience and not just something to be ticked off an itinerary. I've been so fortunate to find not one but two companies, Celtic Horizon Tours in Ireland and Kaleidoscope Adventures in Florida. They share these values and they respect the ensembles and students that they work with. So, whether you're trying to plan a domestic tour in the US with the highest of standards for ensuring your group is safe and healthy, or whether you're starting to plan for that international trip in 2022, you can contact me at keith at globalbandroom.com to start working with me and these world-class student travel teams. And while you're doing that, you're supporting the podcast and documentaries. Thank you.
So let's take a take a step back then, John. You had a hugely successful career within the US and you, you as you mentioned, had no intention of, of moving to Australia, um, you know. Uh, so let's let's take a step back and, and, and talk a little bit about that. I mean, you mentioned earlier before we started recording that uh, music wasn't really something that was part of your, your family. Um, what, what got you started with, with as a musician, um, as a young man? Yeah, it's interesting that there are no professional musicians in my family, so I'm a bit of an anomaly that way. I'm really not sure what happened. But um, I think, though, my earliest musical influence uh, were my parents and that they loved music. There was always music playing on the stereo system at home and all kinds of music. So they loved classical music. They loved show tunes. They loved the popular music of the day. Uh, jazz it was just always music happening, and you know, I remember my dad singing the lyrics to Gilbert and Sullivan and telling me how funny they were, and I'm like, I don't get it, but okay. <laughs> and he would sing the tunes in his rough way, and and my mom would sing to me all the time. Um, but I do remember like some specific things. I I was obsessed with this old LP of um, Peter and the Wolf being narrated by Leonard Bernstein, and mm. it was the New York Phil. And it was so captivating. Like I was just mesmerized by how the instruments told the story of the character. And I loved the sound of the instruments and the melodies that Prokofiev gave them. And I just remember like listening to that endlessly and really loving it. So there must have been like a little spark there. I'm not sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, and I had some really great elementary teachers that we did a lot of singing. So that was just a big part of my elementary experience. But then um, when it came time to, you know, year grade four was when people started band. My parents were actually really best friends with the new band director and his wife. And so I was convinced I wanted to play the trombone because my best friend, Mike Schutzow, was going to play the trombone. And I loved the way the trombone looked. I thought it was so cool. But my <laughs> dad's friend, Bob Kondreskis, the band director, is like, well, I play the clarinet, and that's the best instrument. I've got an extra one I'm going to give you. He was right. Yeah. So my dad's like, you're playing the clarinet. And I was like, oh, okay, that's the cat. Cat's pretty cool. So I started with clarinet. And listen, no regrets. I love the clarinet. Now. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to start trump, a trumpet. Uh, I, 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 it was the only instrument that I that I knew of when I when I was seven wow. years of age. Marched down to the uh, to the band room to to start, and uh, my 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 grandmother um, told me that there was no way that I was playing a trumpet. That uh, her favorite <laughs> instrument was the clarinet, wow. and that's why I played the clarinet. It's it's oh, funny how these little oh, I awesome. do. Yeah, I played we with the military here common, for twelve man. years. We seem to. <laughs> yeah, we both have the Irish connection and the Galway connection. <laughs> right. No, but it's it's funny how those little moments, you know, the, like your your career and your future just turns on that. You know, a professor yeah. or a granny or a parent or someone that's in your family just goes, no, I, you know, you're not going to play this. You're going to play this instead. And then a whole career yeah. is launched after that. The amount of musicians that I hear, those little, those little, uh, origin stories from <laughs> yeah it's, it's that's amazing and i'll have another one that was kind of a trigger moment like um so that band director actually moved on he moved to florida and we got a new band director uh janet van on and, and she was phenomenal as well she's like like the pied piper like she built this huge band program in this little town i was like i grew up in the country tiny town um 
But in year seven, she handed me a score on a Friday afternoon and said, how would you like to conduct the band on Monday? And we had a, a high school band that was grades seven through 12. So I was like, you know, the youngest of the young in the clarinet section. And I was like, gulp, I have no idea what to do. I don't know. <laughs> but I thought about it for a second. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So I grabbed the score, went home. I studied it all weekend. And it was uh, Air for Band by Frank Erickson, that classic, wonderful young band piece. And I came back on Monday. And I will never forget the feeling that first time being on that stage in front of a group of friends and getting to, in my you know very primitive way, shape the music. It was like unbelievable. I remember how it feels, how that felt to this day. And it changed mm -hmm. my life. It changed the path of my life. Because up to that point, I was convinced I wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, I loved music, but I was like, no, I'm going to be a vet. But that experience changed me. And I'm like, what, I want to do what she does. What age were you at that stage, John? Uh, seventh grade? I don't know how old you are in seventh grade. What is that? <laughs> I I certainly Maybe. don't. Well, well. <laughs> yeah, I think it sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> just a kid. Um, that's yeah. I mean, that's so so young to have that that sort of experience. Um, but I think there's well, probably yeah. a point where we all have that that experience where, um, you know, we we go to band because it's you know it's part of the school project, school program, or. Uh, maybe it's, you know, all our friends are in it and that's why we go to it after school, depending where we are in the world. But there's a moment at some stage where any of us that that do it professionally, then there's just a, a, a turning Art. a turning point where something clicks, you know. Well, like probably like many of our uh, your listeners, like it was that one person that believed in you enough to give you an opportunity and I don't know, take a chance on you and and, and say that, yeah, you can do this that inspirational person in our lives tends to ignite and help support that passion. And I think as teachers, that's what we all aspire to do. Like if we're able to do that for our students, like we've given that gift back. You know, one, something that's quite topical at the moment, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, um, but in the UK, uh, there's been a number of advertisements that have uh, been put out there by um, by government. Um, uh, now, they've been taken down since. Um, I think they've, they themselves have realized that they may, may have been ba in bad taste. But it's about this idea that artists need to retrain. Um, and I think it's a good point to maybe a point in your story, maybe to talk to you a little bit about this, because if that had been the message that was being given by local or state or national government that, yeah. you know, that musicians, existing professional musicians need to retrain because, you know, their skills are essentially not valued. Um, wow. Certainly a young John Lynch wouldn't have seen it as a potential career at that point. Um, you know, well. su support supporting the arts. Um, uh, is also supporting arts education, you know, because we have to give people uh, the idea that this is something that they can aspire to and give parents the idea that this is something that their children aspire to. Um, well, how, right. yeah. I think it, well, I think it goes even deeper than that. I mean, arts are essential to culture. They're at the soul of what our culture is. There's been no culture throughout history that has not had music. And so it's essential to being human it is the soul of what we are as a society. And if you rip the soul out, the rest of it doesn't even matter. So this whole utilitarian government mindset that what matters are things that are lucrative and make money or sort of forge some kind of agenda, uh, I'm sorry, but that that does not sit well 
and I'm complete disagreement with it. And if, if we were to take arts education away, um, we would be literally ripping the soul out of education. And, and I'm not one that thinks every person should go on and become an, a professional artist, but it certainly is a pathway for some that feel um, that kind of calling and inclination. And those are the people that provide the arts to the rest of the community. Everyone needs art. It's a, it's a way of expressing oneself and understanding the world. And it's, it's, if we didn't have it, it would, I don't think society would exist. So it's very short-sighted for governments to say, oh, well, let's just defund that because it's, you know, it's not practical and financially challenging times. Yeah. Well, because so. learning arts or being in band is, is not about learning to create art necessarily. Um, right. it's, it's, it's about learning to interact with art and I suppose what the benefits of that then are, I mean, I suppose as music educators, we've been so used to sort of churning out these ideas that, you know, and, and they're all correct, but, you know, we've all started ad nauseum now, you know, well, it, you know, learning music helps with maths, you know, yeah, and, right, and exactly. I like, but, but actually learning it. art is important in itself in that it teaches Absolutely. us critical thinking. And I, I think I get frustrated nowadays with, with these sort of um, defenses of our, our art forms that rely on saying, well, it'll make you good at something else. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, all of that is true and it, and helps it, brain right. development. it helps brain development, which is, is very, very important and compelling. But you're right. It's art exists for art's sake and art's sake alone. Like what you learn about yourself and about uh, the world around you through the medium of art is the reason that art exists and it's communication at a very deep level it goes beyond verbal communication and so it exists because it has intrinsic value it has nothing to do with what it does for all these other disciplines although that is true and you can understand why people would use that to kind of be a bit of a, a selling point uh, and it's and totally true. and look i've done i've done that you know i'm yeah, I'm, I, I'm 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 responsible for recruiting for my town band here you know no, and so good. i've I've definitely, I've definitely used that because that's parents in particular understand that, you know, they well, understand yeah, grades and yeah. <laughs> but I think if that's all you're saying, you're missing the very most crucial point of, of why exactly. we do this. And we sell ourselves short if we don't get to the, eventually get to the core of why we're so important. We are absolutely critical. We're more important than anything else. John, there's a lot of people that um, listen to the uh, podcast that come from the marching band world and from the drum corps world. Um, was that a part of your upbringing as a as a as a student? I know it's not something yeah. that you're necessarily uh, uh, involved in these days, but was it a well, part of your your early days days as a musician? Oh, absolutely! And I always joke now because I, you know, I have Australian friends and students that ask me about it. And it's mm. not absolutely not. It's been the only time in my life it's not been a part of what I do. I always say that I've spent more years involved with marching band than not. <laughs> and it started, you know, when I was in high school. I was in uh, my high school marching band because we were a small school. Though this is a funny story. I was the center on the football team. I would not go down to the locker room at halftime. I would go and get my <laughs> clarinet and play on the sidelines. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, yeah, of course, they go hand in hand. And I was in my university marching band, in Indiana University. I was in the Marching Hundred as a music education um, major. We were all required to do it, but it was so much fun. My best friends were in the band. And then uh, as a high school band director, I taught for 10 years and I led marching bands. And then at the university level, I worked with huge marching programs, Northwestern University, part of the Big Ten. 
um, as the director of bands at the University of Kansas, so I was involved very strongly with the athletic bands. And then at Georgia, which has one of the biggest football programs in the world, um, you know, we play for 97,000 people every Saturday with a marching band of 500 students. So, um, yeah, marching band is a huge part of what I do. And is, is marching band um, uh, popular in Australia? Uh, I know there's probably similar to to, to, to um, a lot of bands in, in, in Ireland and the UK as well, where you'll have bands that will march. <laughs> they will they will march in a block oh. down a road. But but is there show show band style uh, marching not, in Australia? Not so much, really. Um, yeah, there's a lot of community uh bands that do march in parades and brass bands especially so that is a big part of our history and culture and tradition but field shows not so much because you know that's quite honestly it, it came out of the um, the u.s football tradition that's where marching band began the marching band to do field shows and then drum corps eventually evolved out of that but it's not really very prominent here there might be a few um but i'm not even really aware of them so is, yeah, is there no. is there any drum corps at all? Are, are you aware no, of any drum corps? No, it's not that I know of on the continent. No, um, yeah. but I could be wrong. Somebody could point one out that I'm not aware of. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's no, you know, there's no American football, so it would not make any sense really to have field shows in the way that we do in the United States. Hmm. I find, yeah, I find it's it. one of the things we struggle with here. You know, we've got we've we've got um you know aspiring drum corps. Uh, in the UK right. and Ireland, uh, particularly in the UK, it's it's actually quite strong proportionately. Um, yeah. But you know we've we've got these massive big football fields with small little bands on them, so it's never quite as impactful as it is when it's uh, you know performed in the US. Um, well, I think it's fascinating because it's sort of taken on a life of its own. It's it's kind of decoupled from football, if you will, and become mm. its own art form, and that's really cool and exciting. And like places like Japan, where you know American football is not a big deal, but marching band is. And they're doing it to a very high level, Canada as well. And so it's so interesting to see that. It just hasn't caught on like wildfire here. And so many people always ask me, you're going to start a marching band in Sydney? I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't have the time and energy because that's a huge, a huge amount of commitment. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Absolutely. And I can't um, even picture my conservatory students. They probably couldn't, you know, play and march at the same time. They find it quite challenging. <laughs> oh, you got to get them out to the uh to, to to the army and get them trained up <laughs> yeah after the oval right? <laughs> right so so um you after after school after um uh, um uh, high school um and, and college uh you where 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 did you start with your career as a as a music educator was it straight into college education or did you go through no no i i high school I, my dream was always to be a high school band director. So mm. I came back to my home state, New York, and um, I was an assistant band director in my very first gig, did all kinds of things. I taught general music at the high school level. I taught the ninth grade concert band. I started the first jazz ensemble at my school, North Rockland High School, and I directed the marching band. And then a few years later, a head director position came up in a neighboring district, Monroe Woodbury, that had a really, really strong music program. And I just decided to throw my hat in the ring and I got the job and I was like oh my gosh and it was like the dream high school job I was there eight years and I absolutely loved it I mean it was such an arts-minded community and uh, the wind ensemble was just really valued there as was chamber music we had a very I would say well-rounded comprehensive program we had a, a competitive marching band um, big chamber music program big jazz program and uh, a really strong concert band program with three or four 
levels of concert band. So it was kind of like running a, you know, a big, a big corporations, massively difficult. You know, any high school band director out there will tell you it's probably the, the hardest job on the planet. It's really, really intense, but mm. I loved it. It was so much fun. I think the I think the middle school directors might might argue with you on that one. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, I I don't have the perspective of having done that, but I I do know that that is quite challenging as well. <laughs> uh, I, look, you know, we're, we're not arguing. We're we're, we're you know, there's it's it's difficult at all stages. Let's say that. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I will. I always say that the most important job are those that are teaching the beginners, because that's where the foundation is laid, and that's where students grab their passion for, for the art form. So yeah, I mm. have off to those that, that start uh, band students. It's really, really important. And honestly, I think that's where, uh, that where the U S is, is, is particularly successful, um, is the beginning stages of, of yeah. band, you know, and, and, it, and, and it then uh, exactly, as you say, it has this uh, knock on effect to 10, 12 years later when they're, when they're coming into university, having had, you know, just a, a really, really excellent start. Um, yeah, in, in I, I always education. say it's so important that some of our best and brightest and most talented um, university students are becoming teachers. It should never be a fallback. It should be those that are passionate about it and really great musicians because they're teaching the future musicians. And I think universities need to keep their eye curricularly on how to train band directors to do the nuts and bolts, as well as the art of what we do as teachers. So the, the university programs that traditionally have taught people how to teach the instruments well, that needs to continue because I see an alarming trend moving away from focusing on that. And it's going to be to the detriment of our future generations of, of, of young musicians, because we have to understand how the instruments work and the pedagogy of how to teach the instruments. That's got to be at the core of people that are going to be doing that as teachers. So one of the one of the differences that I notice between uh, the UK and Ireland and the US, and I'm I'm wondering whether you see something similar in Australia, is that most of the graduates coming from college um, are, are aspiring performers and are educated as such. Right. Um, and uh, you know, like I play, I played professionally as a clarinet player for twelve years, wow. um, but I had to teach myself how to teach clarinet. You know, by the time right, that I had right. played professionally for so long, yeah, right, yeah, and is so in Australia. So most of those community bands or music programs are they being taught by um, uh, trained music educators, instrumental music educators, or is it more, or is it more similar to I suppose how it would be here, where you're getting instrumentalists like myself that are sort of almost sort of learning on the job how to be music educators because that's one huge difference and that's that's where i would always give the american system a huge amount of credit for the music educators it's it's producing well i would say it's kind of mixed like every state is different in in the certification that's required i can speak specifically to new south wales where i live and that it's the latter it's more similar to the situation you're describing where a person will come through the conservatory program be a very, very fine musician on their instrument, but uh, be basically learning on the job how to teach, how to become, or even, you know, some of the students, they come through and they're not required to take conducting. So they'll have no training in that area. They will have no training in pedagogy. And so it's basically learning on the job. But there are people that come through the music education. Um, There is, you know, a course in music education. But those folks are being trained to teach uh, classroom music because that's what's curricular. 
And some of them do um, at some point end up taking on a band as well. So there is like one course that teaches everything that they're supposed to know about teaching band and teaching instruments. So it's, it's not nearly enough. So yeah, a lot of it's just kind of learning on the, on the job. But I will agree that the American system, I think, is very strong in that way and how we prepare music educators to do their work. And I think it's a, it's a good model. John, I feel like we've um, only just started talking about your uh, uh, your, your career, and uh, but we're starting to to, to come come close on time um, for the interview. Okay. Um, just before we be, before we wrap up, I just want to sort of uh, check in a little bit about what your perspective is on where we go from here right now. Um, it sounds like things are starting to get a little bit more positive in Australia, and, and hopefully we yeah. we'll all be uh, following following suit over the couple of months but you know we our activity has so been is has has been uniquely affected um by this and and, and i'm sure many other activities have been as well but you know we're biased and we have a concern about our own particular activity um where with with the i suppose with bands not being able to meet recently and with young kids particularly not being able to meet and train do you see uh, any huge challenges to us coming uh, up in the in, in coming in the coming years, or do you see more opportunity? Uh, and it's probably a little bit of both, obviously. But but what, yeah. what what's your perspective on where we stand in this community? Well, it has definitely been you know the hardest year that I've ever experienced in in our discipline. It's hard around the globe. It's it's been very very challenging, but. In a way, it's been reaffirming in that what we do is so important uh, to to communities' well-being, to individuals' well-being, to students' well-being, that when the music goes away, we lose a bit of our soul. And everyone's feeling it. My students are feeling it. And we've been able to come back in a very limited way. We've just started rehearsing again in a, in a distanced way. But that feeling of being able to reassemble uh, and play music together, it's just unbelievably like emotional. And uh, it makes you realize what we've missed uh, these months. And it's been a really, really tough time. But um, I know we're going to get through it. I also believe it's going to change us uh, for better or for worse. We're not ever going to approach it the way we did in the past. It's going, the pandemic, I think in, in all parts of society, it's going to change um, how we look at our lives, how we do things, um, how we teach, how we learn music. It's going to have an impact. But what I'm hoping is that a lot of positive things will come from it and that we're going to learn from it. We're, uh, we're, a, we're going to learn how important what we do is. And then B, maybe find new ways and more creative ways of doing what we do that will show that we've learned through the pain of the experience. Like we've used it for positive growth. That's what I'm hoping. Um, John, you mentioned earlier on um, that uh, one of the, your passions right now is promoting um, music by Australian composers. Uh, and for anyone that is unfamiliar with some of those uh, great people working within Australia, um, we have a number of months now where we may, may not be able to perform together, but we're able to do some research and we're able to build out programs um, of new music. Um, who would you recommend that uh, band directors start looking at? That we that we who 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 are we not performing enough that that are that that are writing music in Australia? 
Well, I think um, in addition to considering Australian works that everyone should be thinking about, you know, how can we enrich and enliven our programming by uh, trying some new things and uh, looking at uh, composers from other countries, looking at uh, 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 women composers, and aside from our historic uh, uh, composers that we've uh, always played, um, it's just going to make the palette of what we do more rich. And it's going to also uh, show our students that uh, the composers and the music that we're playing reflects them and reflects our current modern society. So I love this diversification, but I, I would re be really excited if people started considering Australian composers. We've got some amazingly creative voices here. Probably the most well-known um, Australian composer writing for band now is Jody Blackshaw, and man, many of you may know her. Very gifted, such a creative individual, and filled with life and, and energy and creative thoughts. And her music, uh, if you play her music, you, you, you will be changed by it. Um, she's brilliant at creating soundscapes where um, the instruments can tell a story in a way that's non-traditional. And her scores uh, challenge teachers and students to think in new and creative ways that are, that are um, a little bit outside the box. So definitely would encourage you to consider her. Uh, Brian Hogg is a very, very talented composer from the Melbourne area. Uh, Ralph Hulkerin historically has been writing for quite a, a number of years for bands at all different levels. Very talented voice. Uh, David Stanhope um, is a very gifted Australian composer that's been around a long time. These are some of our more traditional uh, people that have been writing for band and are very skilled at it. But we also have um, some exciting new voices, people that are at the top of their game but would never have considered for writing for band before that are now uh, producing new pieces. Matthew Heinzen is probably the most prolific uh, and uh, well-known living Australian composer. Matthew composed for the Olympics when they were here in Sydney, and uh, he wrote a brilliant band piece for us called Requiem for a City, co-wrote it with a famous international DJ, Paul Mack, so it draws on techno and trance elements, uh, the first piece of its kind in our, in our genre, and he's uh, now writing some, some other new pieces for us. Uh, Ross Edwards has written his first couple of band pieces. Ross is one of the most prominent living Australian composers. Ross draws in for um, inspiration from nature, and from dance. He's very connected to the land and the landscape. Um, Elena Katz-Chernin is one of our most prominent living Australian composers. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, she's written a few band pieces, and she's writing her first work for us um, at the Conservatorium. It's a, a, a piece for about 17 players plus solo guitar, so wind, a wind ensemble and solo guitar. Um, so yeah, there's just some really exciting voices coming out of our country. And I mm. hate to grossly generalize, but I think, uh, like you could probably say, music for most countries reflects both the people and the beautiful landscape from which uh, the composer emerged. And uh, the Australian sound is different from any other. I mean, if you listen to an Australian piece, you'd be like, okay, you can hear that, um, oftentimes that connection to the land. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to get more and more Australian works out there in our genre. No, that's, that, that's fun. And, and honestly, we are living in a time where we might may have time to do that research a lot of the you know a lot of the time we as as band directors might say well we just we haven't had the time to 
you know, sit down and, and really research. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to find the music on the, and on those common sources and common publishers, um, they're where we find music, but it's, you know, um, I'm going to give a, another shout out to Jody Blackshaw here. She's been doing amazing work with the colorful music initiative. If you're ever looking for inspiration, um, f- to find new music or find music that is, um, diverse, it's a, it's an incredibly good resource, you know? Yeah, I think in this at this time, it's a really exciting time to examine new pieces that stretch us uh, sonically and stretch our students culturally in their world awareness. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those opportunities, like it's a reset button. The pandemic has made us sort of reevaluate what our priorities are and, and how we want to move together as a as a band movement internationally. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. Um... Uh, if people wanted to find out more about you and your work and uh, the groups that you're working with, um, where where can they do that? Well, maybe probably the easiest thing is I have a Facebook page, uh, John P. Lynch, Sydney Conservatorium uh, Wind Conducting. And so I um, post regular recordings of what we're doing, just chatting about uh, things that are going on here in our country. And would urge you to just check us out. And um, yeah, just come on down under. It's a really beautiful place to visit. <laughs> We're very fun and welcoming here in Oz, and would love to see people um, coming here and, and, and striking up a conversation. You know, look me up, and, and uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about Australia. John, thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you so much to John for joining me this week. I'll be back next week with more great guests from around the band world, so head over to your favourite podcast catcher and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And in the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with anything that I'm doing or anything that's happening with the Global Band Room, you can do that on Facebook and Instagram at the Global Band Room and on the new website as well if you haven't been there, which is globalbandroom.com. So until next time, stay safe and I'll see you back in the band room.